Good morning, saints. <laughs> I got a few of them. Awesome. Good morning, sinners. <laughs> you know, I, there's no better place for a sinner to be than in church this morning. That's what I want to say. I'm glad that you're all here. Uh, if you are our guest and you heard that invitation to join us for lunch today after the 11-11, uh, you can still do that. You can just check in at the welcome desk. You can go do what you need to do. Maybe you got to do that Costco thing, you know, or go to that vortex of hell, otherwise known as Ikea. And if you ever do find yourself out of those two stories, you can come back for lunch and, and uh, we'd love to have you. I'd love to host you. love to get to know you. It's never too late for us because our table is open and ever increasing. And so we want to invite you. If, you. if you're thinking about it, please uh, t- take the time and just check in at the welcome desk on the way out. And we will gladly uh, accommodate you. Sociologists and educators across the spectrum have encouraged families to do one simple thing, to maintain connection with one another. Do you know what that is? It's to eat. It is. It is. It's to eat. And the issue just isn't eating, of course. Um, that's a non-negotiable because we're biological or- organisms. You tracking with me on that? The issue instead is actually eating together. The family dinner might seem cute and outdated in our mobile, crazy, busy current age, but there's actually something of importance here. And let's be honest, parents, we often wolf down, you know, meals, especially our kids in a car seat. It's a bagged meal. They've, we've ordered it through some stupid, I can't even get our message right because they're always getting it messed up. And why? Because we're going from one practice to another rehearsal of sorts. And children, we find, are often eating either from a desk or they're alone or they're in their rooms or they're texting friends or playing video games while they eat. A family dinner, though, it creates a connection and, and the fact of the matter is, as believers, as the church, the church, we should know this and the importance of coming together. And too often when we speak of creating community in our churches, we're talking about some new program. You know, let's do a program, it creates community. The Bible says little or nothing about programs, really, it says nothing. The focus of community instead is more often actually around a table, around a common meal, and when we look into scripture, we see that Jesus is constantly eating and drinking uh, with people. And we read in the New Testament that Jesus came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Also that the Son of Man came to seek and to save that was lost. And the Son of Man has come, how? Eating and drinking. And so those first two verses are actually a statement of purpose. It's, it's so important in the mission of Jesus. It was a sign. Uh, uh, he came to serve. He came to give his life as a ransom. He came to seek and to save the lost. That third statement, that third verse, though, was his message. How did he come? He came eating and drinking. Now, it's interesting. It could be said that Jesus did evangelism and discipleship around the table. He had grilled fish. He had loaves of bread. He had wine. That's how he did it. And this is why eating and drinking is actually so important in the mission of Jesus, because it was a sign of friendship. It was a sign of friendship with the tax collectors. It was a sign of friendship with the sinners. His excess of food, his excess of grace are all linked together. They're all joined around a table. It was interesting because what I wanted to do today was actually 
have a table set and then order out a whole bunch of fast food and then invite people to come up and just sit here and eat while I preach this message. And so one of my sons was sort of going, well, that would be interesting. You mean you just have them talk and they can do their own thing? And I go, yeah. He goes, well, I'd be watching that all the time. So hence, there's nobody eating here. But you have the picture in your mind, sitting around the table, talking. As a matter of fact, some of you will be going. Some of you had other plans, and after hopefully today's life lesson, you'll be going, mm, you know what, we need to bring the family around or the friends around the table. You know, Jesus recognized that meals were a means of anticipating the kingdom, of enacting grace, enacting community, of sharing the abundance of God, the blessing, the fruitfulness. And, 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 and it's a taste, when you think about it, it's actually a taste of what the end-time banquet will be like with him. Now, Luke twenty-two fourteen 14 says, And the hour came, and he reclined at the table, and the apostles were with him. And he said to them, I have earnestly desired to eat this Passover with you before I suffer. He's laying it out. This is before Jesus is crucified. Now, you've got to remember, I think sometimes we read the Bible, we come to the, the Last Supper, and we think, oh, this is the first time they've ever done the Passover. No, 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 no. They've been doing the Passover, and, and Jesus with his disciples, we can presume, it's not written, but we can presume that they were doing the Passover together religiously every year already. This is the last Passover. You're tracking with me on that. And so... I want to chat a little bit about the Passover because it's, it, it's going to take a turn here for us. So if you don't know what the Passover is, it's when God talked to Charlton Heston. And uh, now some people are going, what is he talking oh, Charlton? Who? No, Moses, all right? Us old folks know what that joke was all about. So God talks to Moses uh, and he says, look, I want you to go back to Egypt and I want you to get my people out. And I want you to take the Israelites out of Egypt. And so Moses goes there and he says, hey, let my people go. And uh, Pharaoh argues and Moses says, okay, plagues are going to come. And the water turns to blood and there's all these plagues. Pharaoh has his heart, heart hardened by God. There's something that we have to deal with because it's in Scripture. In fact, when we read Scripture, it happens more than just to Pharaoh. There are at least four other occasions where God hardens people's hearts. And in one occasion, he actually hardens the heart of a whole nation. So let's move on. Now, he hardens Pharaoh's heart, and Pharaoh refuses to let them go. And so God, through Moses, says, okay, this is what I'm going to do. This is what I'm going to do. I'm going to kill the firstborn among all Egypt's sons. Like, that's pretty heavy. And so the first son of every Egyptian was going to be killed unless they took the blood of a lamb and they wiped it on their doorposts according to God's instructions. So God gave very clear instructions. If you don't want your firstborn to die, follow these instructions. And part of that was to write or wipe the blood of a lamb on their doorposts. And so when the angel of death came in, he passed over the homes, right, that had their doorposts wiped with the blood of a lamb. But he did kill those of the firstborn of the Egyptians that, that weren't. It's a harsh story. And from that moment on, Israel, the Jews, they remembered. Because that was that turning point to letting his people go. And they remember and they celebrate what is known as the Passover meal. 
And uh, how many of you have ever been part of a Seder meal before or, or a Passover meal? We've done it here a number of times at Seoul. It's, it's great. It's, it's repeated, though, every year, especially, obviously, amongst the Jews. It's repeated every year. The story is told and retold all the time. It was told and retold at the time of Jesus. Why? So that the people would never forget. And every element of the meal tells a part of the story so that people would never forget. And God made it very clear that he would not only spare his people, but he would also lead them to a life of freedom. So we're going to take you out of Egypt. We're going to spare you because you did what I asked you to do. And now we're going to give you a life of freedom that they couldn't even imagine. And so at that point in time, what God does is he gives four promises. These four are four promises are found in Exodus chapter 6 and verses 6 and 7 and these four promises are actually the foundation of the Passover meal and it says this it goes therefore say to the Israelites I am the Lord I will bring you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians I will free you from being slaves to them I will redeem you with an outstretched arm with mighty acts of judgment and I will take you as my own people and I will be your God then you will know that I am your Lord your God who brought you out from under the yoke of the Egyptians so if you're familiar with the Passover meal, the celebration that Jesus was having in Luke 22 with his disciples that they've already done many times before, there are four cups of wine. And uh, these four cups of wine in the Passover meal, they actually represent something and they celebrate these four promises that we just witnessed or read through. I will free you from your oppression. In other words, I'll take you out. I will rescue you from slavery. I will save you. I will redeem you with a powerful arm and, and great acts of judgment. I will redeem you, right? And I will claim you as my, my own people, and I will be your God. I will take you as a nation. There are promises to these cups. And so each of these uh, reveal God's presence in a very distinct and dramatic way, as ex explained in the Passover meal. Again, this first cup, based on bringing you out, bringing you out of your oppression. It was the introductory cup to the Passover meal. Now, it, Passover meal begins at, at sunset, and uh, uh, the father gathers the family around the, a nice large table. He reclines to celebrate the freedom won by God in Egypt. Again, that was a part of the victory that they were remembering. And the first cup then is mixed with water and wine. And, and after the mixing occurs, the father begins with a formal blessing over the cup. And if you've been with, we've been with families, and there was a blessing, a specific Hebrew blessing that would be said. And, and after the blessing, the food is then brought out, which includes unleavened bread. All right? Well, it's cracker. No, it's not. It's called unleavened bread. It's not crackers. Similar there, too, but unleavened bread itself. And uh, uh, there's also bitter herbs that come out there. There's a, a bowl of sauce. There's some roasted lamb, which is known as the body in the traditional Jewish sources. There's appetizers were also brought, up, brought out. However, the actual meal had not yet started. You were just getting started. This wasn't, hey, let's quickly eat and get out of here. This was, hey, we're sitting down, and we're going to have a meal. The second cup, the one of deliverance, it, it, it's I will rescue you. But it wasn't only just physically, but it was also mentally from the slavery mindset they found themselves in. This cup would be mixed, but they wouldn't drink it. Again, a reminder. It served as a reminder 
for what the Lord did that night in, in uh, Egypt. And during this process of the meal, one of the sons would actually ask the question, why is this night, Dad, different from the other nights? And, and again, this question is connected to the drinking of the second cup. The father would answer and by quoting a specific section of, of scripture found in Deuteronomy 26. And that would be the answer to it. And there's this exchange that takes place around the table, around the food, around the bread, around the lamb, around the wine, mixed with scripture, telling story, telling history. And it displays. Uh, displays how the Passover meal that they're participating in looks back to the Exodus. It looks back to redemption of the Israelites that they receive uh, from God in Egypt. And the father explains during this part of the meal that the unleavened bread, the bitter herbs, and the lamb, they all have a significance. And, uh, you know, again, explaining the significance was the part of the meal to express what? Their thanksgiving. So when we remember stuff, we're thankful for it, right? Because that's coming up next week. So then the family would sing at this point in time. They would actually sing a praise, a halal, as it was known as. And uh, they would sing Psalms 113, and they would sing Psalm 114. Very religiously, very methodically. It was part, it was an expression of their faith. It was an expression of the story. It brought back the remembrance of where they've come from and the thankfulness to where they are today. And then there's the third cup, the cup of redemption. God's promise to redeem his people, to restore them to greatness, to lead them <clears throat> in their true purpose of life. And this would be mixed in, uh, and, and, and it's the third cup is where supper officially begins in this whole process. For us, we, we think, well, supper begins here. No, 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 supper begins here. And uh, it's, it was, it's, it's quite intriguing that the family would finally eat the lamb, they would eat the unleavened bread, because... Customs change over time. It's sort of really hard for us to figure out how it was staged during Jesus' times. But there, there was a blessing over the bread. There was a serving of hors d'oeuvres and other issues that were brought, or uh, food that was brought, um, small morsels of bread. And, and all this stuff is eaten after the main course. And once the, the meal was finished, the father recited another blessing over the third cup. And then it was consumed. And it's at this stage in Luke 22, this is where we read about Jesus in the Last Supper. Okay, so this is where we kind of parachute in, in the meal. And then the fourth cup is the cup of praise, halal cup. Again, the, reminder, uh, uh, the remainder of the Psalms, Psalms 115 to 118, would be sung. Um, uh, the Psalms may not mean much to us today if you take your time and you begin to read through them, although it's important for us to learn their significance, that they were well known to Jesus, they were well known to the disciples. They would sing them each and every year after Passover. They memorized them. They didn't need the words up on the screen. You know, there was a script for this, this cup. And when the meal was finished, they would drink the cup. And it's interesting that these four cups actually still hold the same promise for us today. For those of us who have surrendered our lives to God, these cups have sort of been grafted into, we've been grafted into Jesus' family through his death, through the, his uh, burial, and through his resurrection by our faith. And when we've done that, it's interesting how things turn around and we're reminded of 
the same things that take place. And as Christians, we recognize our weaknesses, our sinful mistakes, our need for forgiveness. We, we need to know that our Savior offers us a new way of living that can free us from the enslavement of sin. We realize, and when I say hello, saints, we realize that, that we're, there's a battle that we find ourselves in, that we rely on Jesus every day. And when I say hello, sinners, that we realize that we need Jesus moment by moment, and we're reminded of the third cup all the time, that we need grace and we need forgiveness, because that's what the third cup represents. And as often as we participate in a meal, the final cup is yet to come. I call it the party cup. It's yet to come. So over and over again, the New Testament, it points back to the Old Testament as the fulfillment of what was being taught. So we're about to see the same thing happen when Jesus says to his disciples, for I tell you, I will not eat of it again until it finds fulfillment in the kingdom of God. I am not going to eat with you again until there's fulfillment, until the party happens. And so the Passover lamb that we as believers now see as Jesus Christ, we see this happening in Exodus. It's a picture that they're going to celebrate over thousands of years. And it's under, we understand its, uh, its fullness now when Jesus died on the cross, when he began to explain who he was. And even in the midst of the meal, remember, he's telling his, his disciples, look, it, I'm going to die. And so in the midst of the meal, he takes the cup. And when he had given thanks, right, he takes the cup when he had given thanks, he says, take this, divide it amongst yourselves, for I tell you that from now on, I will not drink of the fruit of the vine until the kingdom of God comes. So Jesus is sitting with his boys, they're at this stage, he says, drink with me tonight, here's the deal though, I'm not going to drink with you tonight, but I will drink with you again. And what we're going to find is he's, there's going to be a whole lot of encouragement later on. But what he's saying is, listen, I'm going to die. And, and they're, they're wrestling with what's going on. But he's saying, don't worry, we're going to drink again. But I, I have to go suffer, I have to die. But we will drink together again. We will have this meal again. We will, we will party again. And then we read that he took the bread. And when he had given thanks, right? So there was a morsel of bread at this stage. He took it. When he had given thanks, he broke it. And then he gave it to them, saying, this is my body, which is given for you. Do this in remembrance of me. And likewise, after they had eaten, saying that the, this, this cup that is poured out for you is the new covenant in my blood. And he shares it. And Jesus, right before his death, he's sitting there going, I want you to remember me. So they're, they're in a meal where they're remembering, and he's now bringing it focus on them where he's saying, I want you to remember me. And I think they're having a hard time processing all this stuff. I know I would. I, 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 I couldn't handle it. But he wants them to remember his actions, his actions that reveal the character of God. He wants us to remember so that in our darkest moments that we would still believe that he loves us. So remember is a key word. Remember, he says, do this, this body, this blood. Remember what I did. Remember me in 
the garden. Remember me crying over Jerusalem. Remember my patience with sinners. Remember my patience with the religious empty zealots. Remember my compassions. Remember my healings. Remember my invitations. Remember, remember where you've come from and where you are now. And something that I've noticed is that people who get saved later in life, they, they remember what life was like before Christ. <clears throat> then we have a whole other group of people, some of you which you identify this. You got saved like when you were four days old. You, you tracking with me? They have a harder time remembering. And this is where scripture really becomes important because it's, it's so important for us to understand that we are born dead in our trespasses and sins. All of us. Born dead. Ephesians chapter 2. Just because you once, you know, maybe said a curse word or smoked a half a cigarette behind a school doesn't mean you're better in some way than, you know, somebody else before God Almighty. That's not the issue. We're all in the same boat. And what Jesus is asking us to do is to remember the price that was paid. Remember the things that he has taught. Remember who he is and what he's called us to. Remember. Don't forget. Be reminded every time you have a meal. Remember. And then I love what, that Jesus does this at supper. Why? Let me just be really honest with you. There is something holy about breakfast, lunch, and supper. Is there not? And I'm not talking avocado on egg on toast, but it's almost holy, right? But you understand what I'm saying? There is something holy when we gather together and we eat together. Um, and it's not just you cramming a double Big Mac down your face in the car. There's, there's something about getting together with people uh, that you love, that you have, or that you're just getting to know, and you have this slow, methodical, foodie experience. But some of us, we, we eat so fast, we don't get to enjoy it. There's something holy that occurs when we sit down together and have a meal. And if you study the scriptures, you think about all the references regarding Jesus and food and drink. I'm the bread of life. You're going to be invited to the wedding supper of the Lamb. You know, a man wanted to throw a banquet, right? Think how often Jesus references eating together. There's, Zacchaeus, come to your house because you're going to feed me, man. Can you imagine? Hey, I'm coming to your house today because you're going to feed me. There's something holy that occurs when we come together around the table. My brother lives in Victoria. He's my oldest brother. And I love it when we go to visit because he takes us to his favorite restaurant. It's called J&J Wonton's Noodle House on 4th Street. It's absolutely fantastic. Now, now there you have to go. If, you, if you're lucky enough to get a place to sit, you sit in what they have what is called a Lazy Susan. Now, this Lazy Susan is in the center of the table, and I don't know who Susan was and why she was lazy and why they named this thing after her, but it's a big round thing that they put all the food on and we spin all the food around, and all you do is you take your chopsticks, and if you're a germaphobe, you're going to hate the experience because you don't get your own little plate of food. No, you've got your chopsticks in there, and you're pulling it out, and you're enjoying it together. And what happens when we go there is something. It's something holy that happens there. 
And it's not surprising to me that, you know, when Jesus said, I want this instituted, and here's what we're going to call it, you know, we're going to call it my supper, it's, it's, this is my body, eat it. This is my blood, drink it. Find your sustenance, find your nourishment, find your spiritual renewal by remembering me. And when I sit down with my brother and we go to this restaurant and it's just noisy and you can see the chefs and they're brought in from all different provinces in China and they're A1 chefs and the food is absolutely phenomenal. And we sit and we talk and we tell stories and we just laugh and we enjoy each other. That's just a holy experience. And when it comes to us and eating and when it comes to us as community in the church, This is something we need to reclaim. Now, I know some of you are here because it's Sunday, and this is what you do on Sunday. And to be honest, in my experience as a pastor, what I've witnessed is that many times there are those who seem to treat church attendance like a hobby. As a matter of fact, a really lame hobby, if I can put it that way. And here's what I mean like that. It's like a Sunday morning gathering like this is the full experience of their spiritual experience. That's it. The full extent of their spiritual experience. And they leave here. You come, you do your thing. Yeah, I came, I sat, I listened, I sang, I might have prayed. I don't know. I paid attention. I maybe fall asleep. But then they leave and they don't have a genuine relationship with Christ. They're not connected at all. And this is just what they do. Have you ever found yourself in that place? This is just what I do. I, I don't really understand that because we're, we're not designed to nibble. You like that? Huh? Huh? We're not designed to nibble. I'll have you know I've lost 15 pounds and I'm still working at it. But we're not designed to nibble. We are designed to feast. Isn't that beautiful? Let me explain it this way, people. I wasn't a fan of being engaged. Sorry, dear. I might need to spend the night at somebody's house after this. Jordan, you got a new home. I'll, I'll come. I'll be with you. But I, I love dating Sharon. She is a whole lot of fun. A little on, on this side of crazy, a whole lot of fun. That's what attracted us. We were just friends, started as friends. And, and all of a sudden it progressed, and next thing you know, we're engaged. And I need to say this, I love being married to you. I do. You're a whole lot of fun. We have had a great life. We have toured the world together. We've had four fabulous boys, right? You know, two daughter-in-laws, a grandkid. We've, we've got it. We've got it all. We're so blessed. We often talk about just how blessed we are. Being engaged. Hmm. Let me try to explain it, what I'm talking about. I don't care what color the plate is or the silverware. You're tracking with me, guys. I don't care about towels. I don't care about duvets. All right? You with me? Now, that got me in a whole lot of trouble. Like, it's not like I was going to look down on the plate you know, a year later and go, hey, we should have got the green one, dear. I'm really sorry about that. Wow. No, I'm going to look at the plate and go, meat. Mmm. 
I don't care. I don't care what the comforter looks like. It can have flowers on it for all I care. I don't care. I don't have a preference. You know, I have to be really honest. That's just how my brain works. But when you're engaged, all of a sudden, you're thrown into all these deals where everybody gets confused. And I mean, if I don't care what the plates look like, is that an indictment on our relationship? That's all I'm asking. It's just... You know, it doesn't mean I don't care about you. I just don't care about the plates. I don't care about the forks. I don't care about the comforters. But what I found out is that my wife cares and wanted me to have, or my fiance cares and wanted me to have input at that point in time. You know, we didn't fight a whole lot when we were dating, right? No, not at all. Um, Those months of engagement, those were a little bit different. Not to say that we fought a whole lot. I won't say that. But this is what I learned about being engaged, and maybe I can help some of you younger folks out. When you're engaged, you have all the difficulties of marriage with none of the benefits. Are you tracking with me, people? (laughs) See, the married folk get exactly what I'm saying. And it's just the truth. I mean, you you get all the fights, right? You got all the complexity. You, You got this commitment. You got confusion. You got the frustration. You got everything that can occur in a marriage... And absolutely none of the benefits, none of the sweet, tender, beautiful things that make all those hard times worth it. Because that's what marriage is about. And so, yes, being engaged can be difficult. And I think that's what happens to some extent with our relationship with Jesus Christ. When it revolves around us snacking and not feasting. Because here's the thing, church people, we're jacked up. We're uptight. We're always going to be. The church is a bunch of sinners. I hear it every Sunday morning. At least you're honest. But we are sinners who are saved by grace, and thank God there's some saints here. But we're hanging out with each other and for each other. And here's the thing. I've talked with people as I've built friendships and relationships outside of these walls. I have found that many people who have tried church but they've never tried Jesus. You understand what I'm saying? They got engaged, but they never got married. They walk around complaining like they're married, but they just got engaged. They've never tried Jesus. And so they look to the church, they look at this church that's supposed to be this perfect reflection of who he is, but we're not there yet at all. We keep forgetting that he who began a good work in you isn't finished yet. And what does Jesus do? He knows that. What does he call his church to do? He sets up a reminder to go back and to remember. He sets up a supper time. You're in my house, you hear that whistle, you know what that means? I want your attention. I could be miles away at a camp or anywhere, I can whistle, my buddies are like dogs. What? Dad called. But that's what Jesus is doing. He sets up a reminder, a constant. When we sit down together, even when we don't have our stuff together, we need to be reminded of what? Of his grace. And that's what he does. And then we have this this invitation, what? To feast, right? 
And that means to find our daily sustenance, our spiritual nourishment. That's why we're reminded. That's what is so important about the table. And one of the first cities where Paul was successful in establishing the church was in Corinth. And now it was a Greek seaport where goods were, uh, were loaded and unloaded from all over the Mediterranean Sea. And the travelers came from every look and place. And it was, as a result, the city had a reputation for trouble and for vice. There were things that were going on there. In the midst of all these troubles, Paul discovers that many people were ready to hear about the salvation that Jesus offered. And the church begins to boom. And he spends time in Corinth with the people. And together they form uh, their church. And he travels further on and continues to share Christ and the gospel. And Paul keeps in contact with this church in Corinth. And he has personal messengers and letters. And they go back and forth. And, and he's proud of the Christians that he left there. And, and, and they at the same time, the church has started to give him a whole lot of reasons of headache. And Paul now finds himself that he has to write letters to what? Remind them of the essentials of what it meant to be Christian. And so it's one situation that especially gave Paul a huge headache was when he heard about how the Corinthians celebrated what? The Lord's Supper. And the church in Corinth was small. The Christian community would have probably met in the house of one person, a, we presume a wealthy member of the community. Now, the houses in those times had public space of dining room. They had a courtyard. Those houses couldn't hold more than 50 people. We had how many people in our life group last night? And it was pretty tight. I can't imagine having more than 50 people in our house. And the more wealthy members of the community, they probably gathered together, and I'm being presumptuous, but it helps create the text here. They probably gathered together in the dining room to eat um, with their peers, right? Before the Lord's Supper was celebrated. Why? Because it was a meal. This was part of the meal. It was a meal. And then the poorer members were probably out in the courtyard. And all too often, the well-off people who gathered began to behave poorly at the party. They would eat all the food that they brought for themselves and for their friends without sharing that with the poor who were present out in the courtyard. And apparently some of the celebrations got a little bit too rowdy and the wine flowed pretty freely and people were embarrassing themselves. And then the church had this reputation for drinking too much. And Paul is appalled by the behavior that's going on. And, and it causes a scandal in, in the church, but it also showed that these people didn't appreciate what they were celebrating. And so Paul writes, and he says, you know, it wasn't proper preparation for... This, this is not what you do to celebrate the Lord's Supper. If you want to eat and drink, do it in your own houses. Go party at your house. That's not the purpose to come together with the rest of the members of the church. Because their behavior, the way they acted when they gathered as the church, showed contempt not only for themselves, but showed contempt for each other. And Paul reminds them of the real meaning of the Last Supper in his letter. He said, I received from the Lord which I handed to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the night he was betrayed, he took the bread... And after he'd given thanks, he broke it. And he said that this body is for you, and do this in remembrance of me. And in the same way, the cup, after supper, saying, this cup is the new covenant in my blood, do this as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread, as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the death of the Lord one. Until he comes. 
And Paul's reminding the community that the whole purpose of celebrating the Lord's Supper was to bring about unity within the church. And those who failed to see Christ in their brothers and sisters through their actions were sinning against the Lord. Now, I wear a few rings on my hands. I wear prayer bracelets. People go, well, what is that? Prayer. I pray for Russia. I pray for Indonesia. I pray for Ukraine. I pray for other areas that remind me throughout uh, churches that are going on and being planted today in, in North Vancouver, second church plant that we sponsor. John did Evolve Church in Edmonton. They had over 300 people at their launch gathering on Sunday. And we're praying that God continues to do everything. That we're constantly reminded to pray. But I have two other reminders. <laughs> Some people get that. These are not fashion statements. Uh, These are two rings that were gifts to me from my wife. One she gave me on our wedding day. Right? It's gold. The second one she gave us, gave me, shortly after the stillbirth of our son Josiah. It's silver. There's nothing magical about these rings that I wear. You know, I don't go invisible when I put one on. I don't. Uh, I, I don't rule the universe with them. Although I wish I could. They're just rings. And, and they're not very expensive, right? They're not billions of dollars. I mean, like, I look at this ring. This is a thumb ring. I got it for 10 bucks, and it's a spoon, all right? So they're not the most expensive rings that I wear on my hand. And if you've probably even found my thumb ring out in the parking lot, you probably wouldn't even pick it up because you'd look, go, oh, look, a broken spoon. And, you know, you would just move on and get in your car. There's nothing spectacular about these rings to you. They're just rings. That's all they are. But to me, they're more than just rings. The wedding ring is a constant reminder of Christ's command on my life, on my life, to love my wife like Jesus loved the church. And I need a reminder because it's not easy. Single people are all confused at this point when you say that. But the married couples are with me. Right? The silver one is here to remind me that I am to impart the greatness of my God to my children. It reminds me of all my boys and the responsibility that I have, a constant reminder to be grateful for what I have and the responsibility of what I have. And so every time these things clink on a glass, right? I can almost write music. Every time they clink on, every time they annoy my hand if I'm carrying something, maybe even playing sports, because sometimes I don't even take off my rings to do that. For whatever reason, I'm awkwardly carrying something and I can feel it digging in. Or I have to shake somebody's hand. You like that one? They shake your hand and they remind you how much of a man they really are. And your hands are going, ah. Every time something happens, I'm reminded. I'm reminded. Some of you know the hymn, Come Thou Fount, right? Come thou fount of every blessing. (laughs) Okay, that's great. Awesome. Glad you know the words. Awesome. It's part of the song that says, Here I raise my Ebenezer. Do you guys know that one? 
Yeah, Ebenezer, right? Yeah, it's not Scrooge, has nothing to do with Christmas. All right, has nothing to do. As a matter of fact, you know, Ebenezer was actually a stone. It was something that the Israelites would put down. They would place an Ebenezer as a reminder in the Old Testament. It would remind them this Ebenezer is a reminder of what God has done. And so these two rings, my rings, maybe your rings, they're more than just silver and gold. They're more than just jewelry. They are a reminder for me, in this case, for what Christ has done and all the gifts that he has given me. A reminder. Not only just me, but my family. A reminder for our responsibility, my responsibility to lead them, to love them as Christ loved the church, and to impart upon them what God has asked me to do as a father. And so to me, they're rings, but they're much more than rings. And the same should resonate with us when we're about to participate together in what we call the Lord's Supper, Communion, or Eucharist. These are words that we use to describe this ritual of taking the bread together. Eucharista simply means Greek and Greek thanksgiving. Yet the simple act of thanksgiving historically has separated more Christians than it has united. Theological arguments, and now if you don't know theology, transubstantiation, consubstantiation, the presence of Christ versus the memorial of Christ have divided churches and literally countries over centuries. And what Eucharist means is simply thanksgiving. And it's a moment when the faithful are called together to consider the gift of Jesus' presence and sacrifice. Right? And to give thanks with a grateful heart. In a few minutes, there are going to be some men and women. They're going to take some bread and they're going to pass it around. Well, actually, you're, they're going to break it off and give it to you. Now, we also have, well, here's the deal. First of all, there's nothing special about this bread. It's, it's not store-bought. Penny made it this morning, 7 a.m., all right? And not only did she make real bread, she also made this gluten-free stuff. I think it's like cardboard. I'm not quite sure, but some of you like cardboard. I can't figure it out. But we have that option. And... Uh, so we will have people with gloves on who are going to have loaves of bread and gluten-free bread, and uh, they won't cross-contaminate, right? We've got to be very clear that we don't hurt some of our folks. And they're going to break off. And like I said, it's nothing magical, but you're going to do that. And then we have these little cups of wine. Well, it's not wine. It's actually juice. But... Um, I've been pushing for wine because we're Pentecostals. I have to say this, which means we only drink in private. I'm just throwing it out there, right? <laughs> so it's juice, all right? I'm just saying, it's just juice. You know, eventually we'll turn that over, but for now, it's just juice, all right? And there's nothing magical about this juice. We bought it at Safeway. Just, you know, just drink it, all right? And it doesn't mean you're going to get sick. I hope you won't get sick. You know, but it's just bread. It's just juice. I hope you're all tracking with me with that. And, and, but for those of us who by faith have been saved by grace, not of ourselves because of him, that no one should boast, it's more than just bread and juice. You're tracking with me. Because now we're called back to Luke chapter 22, and now we remember. Now we are feasting. And in the middle of the feast, there's a stoppage of play. And we remember. And I want you to catch this theme at the end. Jesus is not interested in building a religion. 
That's not what he's doing. You can go to church your whole life, and you can ascribe to every truth, every Christian doctrine, but then say, you know, it's not for me, and you can be lost. You can be perfect in your morality. I do all the things right. You can still be lost. Christ doesn't come to build moral people. He came to save them and to change our souls. And so Jesus takes the bread that night, and it might have been pretty confusing of what was going on, and he's trying to explain and talk to his disciples. He broke it. He said, this is my body. He took that cup. He said, this is my blood. And then on top of that, he says, do this in remembrance of me. Listen, you're going to want to remember this moment, he says, because the next day, the most paradoxical moment in history of the universe is going to occur. 100% complete love was going to collide with complete wrath at the cross of Jesus Christ. Now, we live in 2018, and for some reason, it's uh, of popular opinion that people don't like to talk that, you know, God is not angry with sin anymore, if, even if there was such thing as sin. But if you've ever wondered about God's feeling towards sin, you need to know, look, look no further than the cross of Christ. Because in the death of Jesus, you find the wrath of God towards mankind and towards sin. At the same time, you find the love of God despite their sin. It's a paradoxical moment. It's one that's hard to get our head around. All his wrath, all his love, all at one moment. And Jesus says what? Remember, I want you to remember. Don't forget how much I hate sin. Don't forget how much I love you despite sin. Don't forget those two things. And so today we're going to do some of that. We're going to do some remembering, and we're going to do it together as a community. And the first Christians didn't have churches or building or any other sacred structures. This is what I love. Their only sacred space was the table, which gives life group a whole new thing. And so I, I encourage our life groups leaders to start thinking about how, because I watched ours. We had a huge table spread, and you know, people, we, we had to tell them not to eat, right? We had to wait for the latecomers. You know, you the people who said, oh, it's, what time's life group? 7 o'clock. And it's 7.45, and they're still not there. Yeah, I won't call out any names, but you know who I'm talking about. No, we love our group. They just have a hard time with me, their leader. But it's beautiful watching the meal. Is it not just natural that that is the first century sacred space that we bring into our own places, eating together around a table and the first followers of Jesus gathered around the communion table. They gathered around to eat. They gathered around to worship. They sang. There was praise. A meal was shared. Sacred space people is whenever we gather to worship, praise, and break bread together. That's the importance of breakfast, lunch, and supper. The church always needs to be reminded when Jesus takes the cup, he says, this is the blood of the new covenant. The old is gone. The old way of being, the old way, getting rid of the rigid system of law that, that made you a discipline of white-knuckle morality, it's gone. Jesus goes, no, I'm going to change your heart. Do you hear that? Because of this, I'm going to change your heart. It's not a religious set of rules that follows. It's the Holy Spirit awakening our soul. And Jesus says, I'm going to change your heart. I'm going to change your heart so that you'll love what pleases me, that you'll hate what I hate. And listen, you know why I need to think on that when we do communion? Because in some ways it's so true, and in some ways 
I'm so far off from that. Anybody else feel that way? So here's what we're going to do. I'm done. I'm going to pray, and this is what's going to happen. When I say amen at that moment, men and women, there's the four stations here in the room, two in the front, two in the back. We have bread. We have gluten-free option as well. Is there gluten-free at your table? Yes? Is there at your table? Okay, so I'm presuming there is at the back. So for the gluten-free, do not touch the the gluten-free bread unless somebody is there specifically with gloves on. And if you are gluten-free, you can take your own bread. Um, Again, I just don't want cross-contamination. I respect that. But I'm going to say amen. You can go to whatever station you want. And here's what you're going to do. Our team is going to come up and they're going to begin to sing. We'll come to the altar. And, and, and it's to be reminded of the fact that at the table, people, there's forgiveness. Remember what Jesus did for you. Remember. 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 Remember that there's more at play here. Remember that we're in this together. This is not just between you and God. No, 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 no. This is dinner so to speak. We're in this together. And uh, uh, here's how the Eucharist works when you think about it. For somebody to receive, someone had to give. For somebody to be fed, somebody had to provide the food. If somebody's inspired, which means they've had life breathed into them, then somebody has had that life breathed out. If someone somewhere benefits, right? If we benefit, let's be reminded someone somewhere has paid something for that. God gives the world life through the breaking of Christ's body, the pouring out of Christ's blood, and God continues to give the world life through the body of Christ, who Paul tells his friends at Corinth is them that we are his body we are the body of Christ and we come together to worship to sing to pray to hear the word and now you come today to remember and Lamont is a writer and she wrote this thing called me too nothing to do with the references of the sexual assault going on in our society right now it's not the Me Too of our politics, but she writes this, it's entitled Me Too. In reference to the table, it says, when you're struggling, when you're hurting, when you're wounded, limping, doubting, when you're questioning, when you're barely hanging on, moments away from another relapse, and somebody can identify with you. Somebody knows the temptations that are at your door. Somebody has felt the pain that you're feeling. And when somebody can look you in the eyes and say, me too. And they actually mean it. It can save you. When you aren't judged. When you aren't lectured. When you aren't looked down upon. But somebody demonstrates like they get it and they know what it's like that you aren't alone. That's me too. We're in it together. 
power of the table comes from weakness. That's the power of the table. It's not about strength. It's the weakness and that he is made strong, that others are drawn to Jesus, that we need that, that sustenance, that spiritual nourishment, that forgiveness, that grace. Oh, I can't do this. I can't take it, Jerry. That's the time you need it the most to experience, to be reminded of that forgiveness. If you're a believer in Christ, we're glad that you're here. If you're a guest and you even attend another community, welcome. You know what? We're a mess. We really are. We know we're loud. We know all that stuff. I'm just glad that you're here today and I invite you to do communion with us. Celebrate with us because the same Jesus that saved you has saved these young people up here. The second thing is this. If you're not a believer, and you're here because maybe somebody invited you or whatever and they brought you here. Let me try to explain something. I, I am thrilled the fact that you're here. I love the fact that you're here. And I'm never going to be dis disrespectful to you or your life or what you're doing. I want to present the gospel very clear. And I want Jesus to take care of the rest of what's going on. But I'm going to talk to you about the rhythms of the universe, so to speak, and how things are at the deepest level of the universe. I want to talk to you about what scripture says. There's this thing about this table, about this bread, this wine, that communion is very deeply sacred deal for those of us who know Jesus, who have a relationship. We call ourselves followers of Christ. Listen, I'm glad you're here. You're invited to this place. You can go as deep with us as you want, get involved in the life group. Come for lunch. Come back for lunch afterwards. Love to sit down and chat with you. But communion is very serious for us. And so here's what I'm going to ask, and I'm not judging you. I'm just trying to explain to you where I stand on this. And, and I just encourage you just to sit back and watch and take it all in. Although it's just bread and wine to us, it's actually something that's much more. And, and, and honestly, if you identify, like if I'm speaking to you today and you're just kind of pulling it all together, I would pray that there would be a day when you take the piece of bread and take your old cup. Tracking with me. That you know and you realize the significance of a cup of wine and a piece of bread. But if you're not a believer today, you need to know it's okay to just to pass. It's okay just to sit, to listen to the songs, to sing the songs. And there's no judgment thrown. Why? Because we're at the table together. Father, I thank you for freedom. Freedom that goes well beyond any government can establish. And I thank you for an independence that goes beyond, well beyond any political process. And so today, we celebrate you. And we celebrate what you've done for us and who we are in you. And we remember... We remember your broken body. We remember your shed blood and how it was spilt and spent for the glory of the Father and the salvations of many sons and daughters. So be exalted, I pray, in our hearts and stir in us the gratitude and an understanding of what we found ourselves and what we're caught up in. And the fact that if you haven't and would have not intervened, Lord, where would we be? So Father, I pray that as we eat this bread and wine that those thoughts would be in our head and our hearts and we would find our souls welling up with gratitude for it's in your beautiful name we pray amen amen on that night
Jesus was arrested, he took the bread, he broke it, and he blessed it. And he said, this is my body for you. Take and do this in remembrance of me. Let's remember together. And in the same way, he took the cup, and he blessed it, and he said, this is my blood, the blood of the new covenant. And he gave it to them to drink. Let us remember. You know, it's funny, because he put it out there that in the future, that he would drink again. They wouldn't have these ghetto plastic cups, I think, with Jesus' time, right? We're going to have something new. It'd be a new Genesis 1, a new Genesis 2. We would drink the wine of the new vine. We'll drink it again with him, because that was his promise. And it seems like, you know, Jesus was anxious about it. He wants to get there. But we will drink again with him. We don't know what the time only the Father does. And so for 2,000 years, Jesus has been looking over to the Father and going, Today? <laughs> Today? Are we there yet? No? Okay. Are we there yet? And eventually, there's going to be this day. Maybe today. Maybe in a couple of hours. We don't know. Maybe tomorrow. Maybe the day after that. Maybe the day after that. Maybe I don't get to see it. Maybe I just get to die. And you know what? I'll be honest. That's really fine with being. But maybe my sons get to see it. Maybe their kids get to see it. Maybe their kids' kids get to see that day. That day when Jesus looks to the Father and he says, maybe today? Today? And the Father says, yes, today. And then the universe is ripped open and the sun returns and there's a new heaven and new earth and all is fulfilled. And what happens? We drink together again with no more tears, no more sorrow, no more fear. For a new heaven and a new earth is restored. And there lies our hope, people. That's our hope. Oh, I can hardly wait. Stand with me. Worship team is going to lead us out with the song of the creed. If you want to sing along in your spot with them, you can. If you need to go, it's fine. You're dismissed. But let me put a blessing on you, and here it is. In ancient time, the one who blessed extended his hands for a blessing. Those receiving a blessing did likewise. And I have another blessing for those. If you want to come back for lunch, let us know on your way out. Here's your blessing. Soul Sanctuary, may your table be a sacred place. May your table be a sacred space. May you always remember what Jesus has done for us as you sit and eat. May you celebrate with those around your table and at any moment's notice, may you add chairs to make that space even more sacred. Are you tracking with me, people? And may you practice being an extended family, ever increasing adding to your table. And now may the Lord, grace of the Lord Jesus Christ and the love of God and the fellowship of the Holy Spirit be with you all. Be blessed. And we'll see you next week, which is Thanksgiving. Remember? Amen.